Hello, welcome to the Deadly Analysis podcast. Uh, if you're new to this podcast, we cut open films and let their guts spill on the dock. And tonight, the film that we are going to cut open is Jaws, the classic 1975 Spielberg-directed masterpiece. Now, this film is often discussed as a masterpiece of suspense and horror, but it's not often treated in philosophical terms. And here at the Deadly Analysis Podcast, we fish for philosophical themes. All of those puns have been brought to you by our main co-host, Noah Adam, uh, who is off this week. So I will be joined. I am Jim, and I am joined by my friends Shayra and Ben, and we are going to talk about uh, Jaws. Now, it is still the seventh highest grossing film of all time adjusted for inflation. This is Steven Spielberg's only second release. It stars Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, and Richard Dreyfus as three men who are drawn together because a shark is terrorizing a small New England community. If you haven't seen Jaws, uh, where have you been? Um, but what we'll what we'll do in this sort of spoiler-filled discussion is delve into some of the philosophical themes of the the movie. We'll talk about uh, the filmmaking, and uh, hopefully, we will do film criticism the way I like to do film criticism, which is try and help people love the movie more and find more really good ways to love film. Um, and this is this is definitely a film worth loving. Now. It has often been said that this is a film that is done for the ocean, what Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Psycho did for Showers. It was a major box office success. Blockbuster sort of invented the modern age of the blockbuster, but it's also a really good film, and we'll talk about whether or not, or at least how it holds up over the course of the next couple hours. So uh, we'll start with some uh, sort of general questions of my co-hosts, Shayra, Ben. Um, what did you think of Jaws? What is the first, and and did you, uh, like, I know you sort of rewatched the, the film for the podcast today, but what was your first experience with Jaws? How did Jaws, uh, when did you first discover Jaws and what was your first experience for it? And uh, how does that experience compared to uh, your experience re-watching it for the podcast. I'll start because uh, Ben might have a more interesting story. Um, I kind of already knew it before I ever watched it because I wasn't allowed to watch certain kinds of movies. And of course, the first thing that ever came up in, you know, kids trying to mess with each other is dun dun dun. <laughs> and so I knew that all there was nothing new for me when I first watched it. There was nothing exciting for me when I first watched it, at least as far as like the elements that are supposed to freak you out. Um, so maybe it didn't really hit me that well when I first watched it. Of course, I've been studying film a lot more and uh, it was in my 1001 movies to see before you die list. And I watch it again and I'm just like, whoa, Okay, there are so many elements to this film that have been borrowed and and copied in other films. There's so many ways that they really dealt with hardships and made something beautiful out of it. So uh, it, it took re-looking into it for me to have effects from it. But my best friend growing up, she watched it when she was a little, little, little girl. And it horrified the hell out of her. She still to this day will not go into the ocean. I have to like, hey, let's 
dip our toes in the water. And she's like, I don't know about that. Um, but I will say this. She watched that film when she was around six. And then around eight, when she was in Hawaii, uh, they were on this boat thing where you jump into the water, you hang out in the ocean, you float on some floaties, you hang out with a bunch of other people. And the boat was like, oh, some technical difficulties are happening with the boat. We're going to go fix it really quick and come back. And swimming below the floaties, a couple of sharks. She's now just, no, sharks are just a big no-no and she freaks out about it all the time. So I, I think that the film really did reawaken some fears in people with something that maybe doesn't actually hurt anybody in the long run. I mean, like, of course there are shark attacks, but it's not that common. So uh, kudos to them for creating a giant fear in so many people. But um, yeah, I, it didn't, the first watch, didn't really hit me that hard just because I think there was too many spoilers that are just out there because it's such a famous movie. Yeah, I think there are a lot of films like that where you're sort of trained to think that they're great movies. And so going into it, you already know a lot about them and you have seen clips from them. And uh, as a result, it kind of sullies the first viewing. It's That sort of happened with Casablanca for me where I'd seen the the airport scene so many times that once it actually happened, I was like, oh, oh, but the context kind of fleshes this out. And so it was, it's, it's kind of a weird experience uh, when you're talking about a film that's in the cultural zeitgeist like Jaws and, and uh, Star Wars and, and uh, other films like that. What about you, Ben? What's your first experience with Jaws? Yeah, so I got to say, I didn't honestly start getting into horror until um, I don't remember the year, but basically I remember some of the first horror films that I really decided to go see on my own were like, I don't know, like Ghost Ship, Saw, um, Skeleton Key, um, also having seen it from a young age, you know what I mean? And I'd also seen Alien at that time, uh, Evil Dead. Um, with all that kind of like saturation and that sort of like genre of horror being in my mind as being what horror is. Um, and even like with adventure films that I'd gone to see before, even like, you know, maybe like Indiana Jones or something like that, um, having seen that at some point, I, I felt like Jaws really didn't strike me at an early age from either angle. Because like, if you really think about it, I feel like this can be broken up into a horror adventure action kind of like film mixed up together. You know, something about just knowing the film was iconic, but it's like about a shark or something and it's kind of old, like nothing in my younger kind of like viewership of movies really told me this is something that I need to go see. And so whenever I did end up watching it, I feel like there were really low expectations because all I really knew were some of the highlights. Yes, this is about a giant shark. Yes, there are some like notable quotes from it. We're going to need a bigger boat. That's some bad hat hair, you know, whatever. Um, this kind of st the, the theme music, obviously, I knew the theme music before I'd ever seen the movie. And so like, this is really kind of like all I had in my mind about it. So there were no expectations. Like I went in and watched this at some point, I don't even remember when. And I feel like the more times that I've seen it, like it's, it's always been kind of interesting, but I've been able to appreciate it more. So the, the this viewing for this show was maybe like my fourth or fifth viewing. And every single time I think it's gotten a little bit better, but toward the beginning, like whenever I first watched it, it was completely uneventful. There's really no story. Um, and I wasn't looking for anything in particular in terms of the cinema. So while I did think it was good, I guess, I don't think that I was mature enough in my appreciation of film to really understand why it was good. 
That's really interesting. Yeah, that's sort of the opposite of my experience. Like, I knew this was a great movie. So I was like, oh, I need to appreciate its greatness and suss out its greatness in my uh, in my initial viewing. So I remember I remember watching it very, very carefully going, all right, so what's what's great about this shot? What's great about that shot? What's great about the next shot? And uh, as as a result of that, I think the criticality that I had on my initial viewing sort of changed uh Right, you know, the, the criticality was much different than it is now. But um, so let's talk about some of these, uh, some of the themes that are going on here, and some of the, the the things that this film is doing, and some of the things that this film is saying. Um, I I'm wondering. So this is a, a often critiqued trope of horror movies that horror movies often exist just as sort of as a stand-in for societal norms, and that they're reinforcing societal norms and to what extent does the shark in Jaws stand in for like a super ego, a regulatory force that reinforces conservative uh, societal norms? One of the the pieces of evidence that's often um, marshaled to uh, support this thesis is that the first the first death, uh, um, the first shark kill, is sort of this free love woman. Uh, who's uh, meets a guy just on, on a um, on a sort of beachside campfire, and then they run off to go skinny dipping, and it's she who gets who gets killed, and so it's almost as though promiscuity is punished in the opening sequence, even though the other victims don't fit this theory. Even though I don't think this theory sort of applies to the whole film, I wonder to what extent do you guys think that? Um, this fits that trope of being a horror movie that supports traditional conservative uh, societal norms. Well, that's really interesting to pull out this particular scene for that, the very beginning shot. Um, whenever I think about shots like this, I do think about like a standard horror trope that we see, right? I mean, it's, it's very common that nudity um, in young people and sexual activity in young people is punished um, in many slasher films, many classic slasher films. What's cool about Jaws, though, is that this predates most of that, I think. In fact, it might be the first time that we see some of the techniques used in a lot of these different films. Um, I'm not sure if it's the first film where we see this exact sort of setup where you have kind of like two a, a young couple running off by themselves, and then one of them or both of them getting killed by the big bad. Um, but definitely the way the scene is, sh is set up. So you have sort of like the camera underwater, you're sort of taking the perspective of the shark. It's kind of like this POV action where you're like swimming up and you're about to attack her. Um, and we see that this is the exact same kind of thing that we have in Halloween. So it's like young Michael Myers walking up the stairs and you kind of like see through his mask and he goes and he kills his sister. So in a lot of those like classic horror films where we see this kind of like trope played out over and over and over again, um, maybe I would argue that that had definitely has more of kind of like this, this sort of oppressive, maybe even anti-feminist bent, but <clears throat> because this is the first one, I'm not really sure. And because like the rest of the movie doesn't necessarily rest on that premise, it might be somewhat innocent. I'm not sure. Maybe that's just my naivete coming out, but. The way I've always taken it is that Bruce, the <laughs> shark, that was named Bruce after Steven Spielberg's lawyer, which I think is freaking hilarious. Um, Bruce, I think, is really just 
going after anything that's vulnerable. Um, and, and, and that was always true up until a certain boat scene. And then I'm like, well, wait, <laughs> what is his MO? Um, we also know that he's gone after people that try to give out bait. Um, and so I almost have to wonder if Bruce is just a troll, uh, an OG troll, like he'll go after the vulnerable, but if someone will put out bait, then he'll go after them too. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what exactly was going on in this story and what Steven Spielberg was putting together. I don't know what they're, they might've just been like, Hey, let's make a movie. Let's do something. It, they, there might not be any intention behind it. Um, but I, I did feel like it was a monster preying on vulnerability, uh, young kids on floaties um, and, and people that are in positions where they can't protect themselves. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, that would actually, yeah, go ahead, Ben. I was going to say, yeah, like I think whenever we see this in other movies, it's kind of like it feels so contrived that it almost has to be kind of like an affront or like something more, I don't know, politically driven, perhaps. Um, but just because, like, this is the the first time, like, it 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 doesn't seem nearly as contrived. Like, it's a totally believable situation, and like that's for me at least, like, preying on that point too much as like a, a director and a writing choice. Like having this scene set up in such a way that it's repeated and you see it over and over and over again in so many movies. I mean, that's when it come kind of becomes suspect, I think. But in like this particular film. I mean, no, no, it doesn't feel contrived at all. It feels like a totally natural thing. There's like a beach party going on. That's totally believable. One of the couples runs off. That seems believable. And they're doing couple of young, you know, whatever things that people do. Um, and it just so happens that that's how you get the lead in for your monster. Now, again, like, you know, maybe that's just my naivete coming out, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel nearly as contrived as the way that it seems in most other movies. Yeah, why I mean, did she, why did she swim off that far? That was that was the most annoying part. Like, she, I don't care about her being naked. For it. <laughs> she swam way far away, all by herself at night. What the hell? I don't care if you're the greatest swimmer ever. You've been hanging out by a campfire drinking. You have a drunk dude following you. You're gonna swim that far out? Like, I don't know. I'm sure some people do that, but I, I feel like the mom in me is just like, what are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, common. it's common that we do that with horror movies, right? Like we don't want the person to walk up the stairs. Like I was in a, uh, I was in a theater once and I forget what movie it was. It was a bad horror movie. I can't remember, but uh, it was, it was a crowded theater and um, the, somebody started walking down the stairs and somebody in the audience says, dumb bitch, didn't she hear the music? And uh, that's and that's common for us in the in in the audience of horror movies. They go like, why are you swimming out that far? Why are you doing, why are you making really stupid decisions? Um, that, but I mean, I think what you guys are, are talking about is something that it's more... I, I kind of agree with you in the sense that um, I don't think that this was an intentional aspect of the filmmaking. I don't think that they were intentionally trying to re, um, reinforce conservative mores. Um, but at the same time, it, this is a trope that occurs so often in horror films. And Ben, you are right that Halloween came out in 78. This came out in 75. Um, so this certainly predates uh, the 
the Halloween's uh, use of this trope. And I think that it's the slasher genre in the 80s that really popularized this trope and uh, kept this kept this going to the point where it became a cliche that they can make fun of in uh, Captain in the Woods. Um, but then this does lead to another question about sort of the shark's intentions and how the shark functions both in the film and in our imagination. And that is the question of whether or not this, this shark is almost Lovecraftian, that it sort of compares to films like Event Horizon, where it's Richard Dreyfuss's character describes the shark as a machine um, and that it is just in the shark's nature to eat anything that comes in its in its wake. And therefore, the shark is devoid of a moralizing intent. And it's just it, 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 the it's uh, it goes back to sort of a Lovecraftian idea of what nature is. Uh, that it will just fucking kill you, whether or not you uh, whether or not you can understand its intent or not. Well, if I could just like roll back for just one second sure. on this, so I, I I do think okay, so let's maybe it's not a conscious choice, right? So let me kind of like parse this out a little bit. I wonder about if if there's any evidence in Spielberg's other work of um, kind of like similar because he. I, has he done a lot of horror? I guess like Jurassic Park is kind of a horror. Um, but Duel. are there other his well, first yes, film, his... Duel, which you guys have not seen? The TV film, yeah. This uh, his first full-length TV film, Duel. Yeah. Uh, do you want to tell us about Duel real quick, Shayra? <laughs> Sorry, I went, I tried to unmute my <laughs> mic and I ended up taking off my camera. Uh, so it's really straightforward. Uh, some people are driving on the road, and there's an asshole in a semi. And the asshole in the semi uh, is driving not so great. And the people get upset about his driving and kind of get road ragey. And he's like, okay. And then it's time to kill. So he's just chasing them down. And it's a lot of Spielberg um, shots. And I say Spielberg shots because we just know it for Spielberg shots now. <laughs> but they were already existing and they are definitely very common now. But it's like where you have the semi coming at it and it's like do, 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 do. Like getting closer and closer to the headlights. Like it's coming for you and uh, suspense. It's not really a story. It's just really awesome camera effects that make you scared to drive around. And to stop driving even because who knows who's in that truck and might try to hurt you. Um, so yeah, it's road rage, the horror film. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ben, we interrupted you. Go ahead. Uh, what were you saying about Spielberg and horror and all that? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I okay. So like, this is actually a really good example. I think of, you know, one film where we definitely see sort of like hyper masculine themes perhaps. And if you really think about his sort of filmography, you know, I mean, there definitely is like a lot of, I think, male focus in his main characters. Like, you know, that's it's it's pretty common. I don't know if it over indexes versus other directors of his time period, but it's definitely there. Um, I'm not sure about like overtly conservative um, punishment of sexuality. Um, maybe I just haven't seen his movies enough, obviously. But 
you know, if we were to think about this, yes. I mean, the, the person who got killed in the opening shot, she didn't necessarily have to be naked. So like, I think that definitely is a, a point on the side of objectification and like showing that this is about sexuality being punished in a very subtle sort of way. But I also think the rest of the film, we can also see sort of a struggle between traditionalism and progressivism, particularly between uh, two of our main characters, um, excuse me while I, <laughs> Quint and Hooper, where Hooper, of course, is, you know, trying to bring in sort of like these newfangled solutions to certain problems, whereas Quint's obviously very much traditionalist. And in the end of the film, spoiler, spoiler, spoilers, we see a lot of the progressive shit seems to be what sort of saves the day. Um, and so maybe, you know, there is some like undertones of sort of some of this kind of like anti-feminist theme, but I don't necessarily know if it's um, terribly fundamentalist and it's and it's usage of kind of like that sort of like a, a scene right so i mean maybe there's maybe there's evidence of both in that particular film yeah i think uh i think you bring up good points go, go ahead shira you I, I my political bend to this film is uh something that i want to bring up that is so common in the 70s and the 80s and is now seen as like evil and sjw horseshit uh, capitalism is evil Capitalism is evil is the story. Uh, you have a mayor who wants to make a lot of money off of people going to the beach and having fun. All of the the stores in the area are like, hey, you can't tell people not to go to the beach. If you tell them to not go to the beach and we don't have money, we're all going to you know, suffer. And so the mayor continues not only to rewrite history and say, that, oh, that wasn't a shark attack. That was a boat like malfunction or something. Uh, he, he keeps trying to rewrite stuff so that they can make money. And even when they get to these like horrific situations have happened, the mayor then goes, well, I was just looking out for the best interest of the town. And it's like it, money that you were looking out for money and you put money above lives. And that was such a huge storyline in the seventies and eighties. And shit, you go back all the way to the freaking twenties, thirties and forties. You'll see these kinds of storylines, but uh, all of a sudden now it's SJW, you know, bullshit. If you, if you say corporate, you know, capitalist assholes are are the bad guys. <laughs> like you can't have capitalism be bad. Otherwise it's a political message. But seriously, watch Jaws. It's very clearly saying that the people with their bottom line of of money over people's lives, uh, you know, it's it's capitalism sucks. <laughs> Yeah, let's, uh, well, let us, uh, let's kind of suss that. Uh, look, I agree with you, obviously, especially on, on the political point. Um, and I think that the film clearly tries to direct us into believing that, that capitalism sucks and it's money that motivates the mayor's decisions and that those decisions ultimately suck and are bad and blah, 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 blah. But, um, like, Let's, I, I, if I can play devil's advocate for a moment, even though I agree with you, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment, even the sort of arguing against myself. And, you know, the mayor is depicted negatively. Um, but do they have a point? Do, is there a, safety is part of the state's responsibility. Clearly, it's part of the state's responsibility, the mayor's responsibility to ensure safety, to warn the public about um, real incredible threats. That's obvious that that's, that's part of what they need to do. But 
economics is also part of the state's responsibility and ensuring the white economic well-being of the town is also part of their responsibility. So um, obviously not the way it's depicted in this film, because in this film, he's always sort of shot and he's kind of, he, he's always either, the mayor's always either in the background or he's like smoking a cigar or he's well-dressed. Like there's some sort of indication that he is of wealth and a smarmy little son of a bitch. But is it possible to rewrite and reshoot Jaws in such a way that the mayor maybe has a point? Um, uh, he is the closest thing that this film has to a human villain. But is there is this a villain that we can kind of understand in some ways? Um, am I the only one who thinks that? Or no, no, no. I I think that the beauty of this character and how he was written is that it's not necessarily very clear cut that he's doing things in sort of like a, an evil villainous you know way, right? Um, there's dimensionality to his character. And what I'm really thinking of whenever I say this is that he actually has a scene where he gets very serious and he's like, you know, my kids run that beach too. He's not necessarily just thinking about the money. Um, and like, whenever we think about this Island, right, it's what kind of like a Mar Martha's vineyard sort of type thing where it's like primarily their income. Even the people who live on the Island comes from tourism. And so I wouldn't necessarily put it in the same class of like business, bus big business corporatism. Right. I mean, it's literally, yes, this sort of like small town boss hog type, you know, who's like trying to get his extra buck above maybe everyone else a little bit. Obviously he's got his cigar and like his cheap suit, but ultimately I think there is the point that, yeah, I mean, the people on the island kind of need that tourism trade or they're going to be on welfare all winter, right? Um, and so maybe his sort of apprehension was, of course, we need to be careful if we're going to, you know, raise the sirens or whatever and send everyone off of this island, right? So, I mean, it's like, it's not necessarily that he made a, a, the perfect choice. I think that he was written so that his earlier choices depict maybe a lack of empathy in, in some ways, but also, you know, maybe not. Right. I mean, it's such a gray area and that's, that's what I love about this is that it's not easy to answer. I think that there's so much dimensionality to a lot of the characters in, in this, uh, in this movie that they can't really be placed into those types of really quick sort of easy categories that we might see from a lesser film. Did you guys know that this actually happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in uh, Egypt. Well, go ahead. Uh, in 2010, oh, oh. Uh, there was an issue with a shark. Now, it wasn't a great white because they don't have that tendency that was portrayed necessarily in this. Uh, but it is a white tip. And uh, it got into the places where humans swim area and people were getting a little bit bit on. Um, and they were like, oh, it's nothing. And then people kept getting bit on and then they were like, uh, okay, well, we need to figure out what to do about it. And then they killed a shark and they were like, look, we killed it and it's safe now. And then it wasn't killed. <laughs> and it was like the whole Jaws storyline literally happened in 2010 in Egypt. Um, and then it, they didn't have a glorified ending though. It, it, the shark just swam off and was done being murdery, but those, the white tips are the ones that tend to gobble on people. 
um, but they're not usually in the shallow areas. They're usually in the very deep areas, which is why when they do attack humans, it's when a plane crashes into the water in the middle of nowhere or a boat starts to sink in the middle of nowhere. That's usually when the white tips get you. Um, but it got into uh, swimming waters and nom nom noms on the peoples <laughs> happened. Um, so it's funny because like, you say that these are real people and they're gray areas. And I'm like, yeah, because that literally freaking happened in Egypt. Like this exact storyline happened in Egypt. So um, someone should have shown them Jaws so they would have been able to avoid some of these problems. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, maybe well, yeah, we could have hired someone. Quint's character in, in Egypt. Go ahead, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just you you make a great point. It's the realism of this story, I think, that really carries through. And yes, obviously, we can kind of go back to a point and argue about the fact that they're using rubber shark for the scenes in which we actually see a shark. But this was filmed in real locations. I think the only staged set was Quinn's, uh, you know, shop or like shack <laughs> or whatever it was like everything was real this was a real town they were really filming on the atlantic ocean in this crazy boat you know i mean and the shark isn't like some it's big but it's not some like crazy megalodon size whatever right you know where it's so cheap that it's just completely unbelievable you know i mean there, there it's just it feels so almost like you were talking about earlier kind of like a stephen king thing where he's able to wait, wait was that pre-recording i don't know we we're talking about how stephen king is able to take mundane things and turn them into fantastic horror and this is sort of what we see here is you know i mean it's it's so believable it's so real right and i think that's a big part of what makes this so good yeah i had these characters i mean this is one of the things that i think uh what jaws has left in its wake um, some good lessons and bad lessons for Hollywood and Hollywood blockbusters. As I said in the introduction, it was the first Hollywood blockbuster. It wasn't the first one that was widely distributed, but the slam bang marketing campaign that uh, didn't necessarily work for other films definitely worked for Jaws. And in the wake of Jaws, Hollywood has learned a lot of the wrong lessons um, that we need a Megalodon, uh, as I was saying to the Meg just last year, um, that we need just a big shark and that's all that we need in order to bring people to the theaters. And in fact, the majority of Jaws focuses on character interaction. In fact, the majority of our conversation has been what does the mayor represent? What does Brody represent? And we'll talk about masculinity here in a minute and how each of those characters sort of represents a different idea of masculinity. But all of these, uh, it, you don't actually see the shark for like the first 80% of the film. And that is complete, that's uh, and that's part of what the Hollywood learned wrong about Jaws. They think that all you needed was a scary monster in order to make a good film, but actually what you needed, and actually what I think people glommed onto uh, with regard to this film, is the interaction of the characters and how all of the characters seem like real people. Um, how Brody seems like a, a real well-meaning uh, cop and and how the mayor's interests are both evil, both understandable but also unethical. Um, 
Those are, yeah, you saw how I caught myself. I saw you laughing there, Shayra. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I think that that's a, it's an interesting aspect of this movie that we, uh, that, that uh, deserves a little bit more uh, attention than I think many Hollywood execs paid for, uh, paid to. So Hollywood execs were paying attention to the idea that all we needed was a shark and some big action sequences when actually we needed relatable characters and real human interactions. I think even beyond that, the, the lesson they really should have learned here is, is really, yes, I agree that it's about the characters. Jaws isn't so much about the shark as the movie poster might lead you to believe, but what they really, what they really got right, I guess like what Spielberg really got right here wasn't just that, okay, so there's interesting characters that are well acted. Um, there's tension. They don't show the shark. It's, it's really like an interaction and a combination of a lot of different things. So, I mean, there's definitely some interesting, um, conflict i think that we see we have conflicting motivations all the way throughout the film we have arguments disagreements a rise in conflict and resolution that happens over and over and over again on a micro scale all leading up to like the big finale right but throughout the course of those conflicts and those mini objectives those like mini storylines that's how we seed in the character development so we actually see and learn more about how each character kind of like grows and like their motivations and kind of like their backstories and what makes them interesting and their dimensionality through those miniature conflicts but even through that additionally we see for and this is particularly important for horror as we learn more about those characters through those conflicts, we get those subtle cues that seed the larger fear and more and more toward the end of the film. How many times were there different suggestions and scenes of this movie that the thing to be afraid of was being completely helpless in the open water with this thing coming to get you that you can't see over and over and over again. This was played out. This was played out. This was played out until at the final ending sort of like sequence, we see the boat going down. One guy jumps right through, like down the boat into the shark's throat. Like everything is disappearing. Hope is disappearing. The flame is going out and then boom, a miracle happens that seemingly rescues at least two of the characters. Um, smile, you like, bitch. <laughs> yeah, right, right. It was perfect. Everything led up to that one moment, and it was perfectly integrated and seamlessly seated together to build to that point. It's right, and you're you're talking not just about um, not just about you're you're talking about what we need for really good storytelling, and that is, and especially in film, um, we often need something that like a setup a reminder and then the payoff and this is done expertly with the the compressed air tank which is uh the ultimate end of the shark um the compressed air tank is set up as being possible possibly volatile one character explains to another why it's volatile and then there's a reminder it's just in a, a very subtle shot where the air tank um jostles a bit and Roy Schneider, Roy Scheider looks over at it really concerned. And then they continue with the rest of the action in that sequence. And then finally the payoff when he shoots the air tank and blows the shark's head off. Um, this is uh, what you're talking about is specific um, film school 101 setup reminder payoff storytelling techniques that Spielberg deploys uh, expertly in this because it's so subtle and because it, it ends up playing both on our conscious and subconscious minds. Well, the if nothing thing, else, 
the oh, thing sorry. that Spielberg does is he was a film buff. Him and all of his friends were nerds about films. They were always studying film. They were basically doing the stuff that you're supposed to do, taking the basics of storytelling. Like with George Lucas, his friend George Lucas took the hero's journey, turned it into Star Wars, um, and and made a space western hero's journey out of the basic gist. And and even you know when you look at the the way the hero's journey is supposed to be you could actually look at star wars and piece out ex how it's perfectly put there it's not necessarily that they're extremely innovative what happened is this group of guys that they were all buddies they were film nerds that were like hey let's like steady this shit and make some shit <laughs> and it was like it was an amazing time for filmmaking right yeah, and and Jaws is where this came boom right there, and you actually see this with basic character conflict, and and I know Ben, you covered this, but the the basic character conflicts are where there's two characters where they have completely opposing sides. So you have the book learner and the you know guy who just knows stuff because he's been through the streets, and then they're conflicting the whole time. Let's compare scars now, motherfucker! Like they're just so mad at each other, uh, but they actually are bonding. And, and, and I guess in that way, that's why some people might see it as masculine, right? It's like, I hate you. Look how amazing I am. Here's my ego. And now we're best friends. <laughs> and it's like, I guess that's masculinity, if you will. <laughs> but um, I don't know. It's, it's, they, it's like they took the basics of the stuff that they learned in school and the stuff that they had played around with in their heads together. And they just said, let's just do something. Let's just do stuff together. Yeah, I think you're right. Like the 70s were, it, for my money, the greatest decade in the history of American film. And it has a lot to do with Spielberg, Lucas and Coppola, along with, you know, later Scorsese, Sidney Lumet. Um, it's when film, in order to compete with television, uh, well, in the 60s, in order to compete with television, film got R-rated. It started to explore more adult themes. It started to, uh, like, the, the film nerds kind of took over, and it raised the quality of movies to the point where actors were like, I'm a film actor, and then over here we've got the lesser actors who do television. And there wasn't as much crossover as there is now. That's... This uh, you can sort of map the '70s as sort of this apotheosis of all the best things that happen in film uh, up until it, it's it's sort of a logical conclusion of what was happening up till up till that time in order to compete with television and other rising media. Um, and I will I will kind of quibble a little bit with you, Sherry. Like I do think it's create. I do think the the Spielbergs and the Lucases and the Coppolas and the film nerds of the 70s were were really quite creative because my definition of creativity is the ability to juxtapose two things that had never been juxtaposed before. So it's not just that they had to come up with some grand original idea. It's that they had to combine two ideas that had never been combined before. Like Lucas says, I'm going to combine a Western with space and I'm going to make a space Western, you know, so that that's juxtaposing two things that had never been juxtaposed. Now, 
you can quibble with the word never because Star Trek was doing Star Wars long before Star Wars was even thought of. So, you know, uh, but it, nevertheless, the point is, is that um, it's, it's in the combination of two things that are uh, not necessarily normally related that I think that's where creativity. All right. Here's, here's how I'll, I'll deal. And I, and I 100% agree. Creativity is taking many different parts and piecing it together in your own weird way. I love that. Everybody steals from everybody. There's nothing original out there, period. Um, but I will say this. I feel like the 70s for these directors, and I'm not even bringing them down because they're fucking amazing. All of them are amazing. Uh, but I feel like they were school projects. They were like, I learned this thing. I do a project. <laughs> they're just like, oh, yeah. I, 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 I'm doing I, a project. I, Fine. It's about a truck. It's about a shark. Whatever. Uh, so I, I think that that's, what's amazing. They, I wish I had that kind of gumption, right? Like I'm learning all these things. Sorry, there's dogs. I'm learning all these things. And I'm like, I want to just go out and do stuff. Why can't I just make a movie about a truck? Why can't I just go make a movie about a shark? I should just go make a movie about a truck and a shark, you know? <laughs> there's two things that have never been juxtaposed before a truck and a shark. <laughs> We've got the new uh, truck NATO or shark truck. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you get the idea. Here's what it's going to be. It's going to be like Twister okay. where they've got like the big thing full of those sensors in the back of a truck, but they're going to be trying to send those into the shark NATO, right? So here is your truck shark NATO mashup. Boom. Done. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, that's fantastic, Ben. And I also like how in the comments you uh, <laughs> you narrated our resolution and conflict. That was great. Um, that was. If you're not seeing the comments, it's hilarious when Ben meta narrates his own podcast. Um, all, right, uh, all right. So we talked a lot. We sort of touched on this idea a lot, um, but let's let's explore this a little bit more. Um, I'm going to sort of proffer a theory about how masculinity is depicted in this film, and I'd like to hear you guys sort of comment on it and and tell me that I'm wrong. Or tell me that I'm right. That's cool, too. Um, but I find this to be an interesting depiction of masculinity because I think there are three distinct forms of masculinity that are uh, being shown in this, this, this film. The first is Brody, who the Roy Scheider character who represents the heart. He is compassion. He is fatherhood. He is family. Uh, he is looking, he's the protector, he is a lot of the things that you talked about, Sharon, your um, horror movie daddy's uh, video, where I think he is the, the protector in a, in a horror film. Um, then you've got Hooper, who is the head. He is analysis, he's science, he's intellectual. Um, so these two different aspects that, yeah, he's also ye of goofy faces as well. Um, and then third, you have Quint, who is uh, the phallic form of masculinity. He represents drive, ambition, destruction, um, 
And so I think you get to see these three characters as metonyms for larger constructs of masculinity. And we get to see all three of them sort of come together in the second half of the movie where it becomes basically three men on a boat. And uh, I, I, I wonder what you guys think about that and whether or not uh, you have anything to add to that or if I am completely wrong or whatever. I just, I just want to say, three men on a boat would make a great porn, and if anybody wants to make that, really <laughs> watch. <laughs> can, we a, can we add a shark too? Uh, three men on a boat with a shark. We'll see after after the shark, it actually becomes two and a half men. Uh, if you know, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. I just heard Quint go, uh, and then his last little. Uh, that's what happens when he gets last bit. Uh, poor poor Quinn. You know, uh, Hooper was supposed to die. Uh, he was supposed to die. Yeah. Doesn't but he the, book? Uh, the reason why he didn't die was a bunch of Australians sent some footage of a, a shark cage and some sharks like beating it up and stuff. And... Uh, Spielberg liked the shot of the cage getting attacked by the shark without anybody in it so well. He was like, you know, I'll just let him live. <laughs> and kept, because he wanted to show that awesome footage that the Australians had filmed. So, uh, yeah, there you go. That's why he's not dead. <laughs> it's because of awesome Australian footage. I don't know if that's true. I, I saw it in some documentary, <laughs> but... Yeah, I, I didn't see that. I didn't know that that was true. I think he dies in the book. I don't know. I'm not. I He dies in the book and he has an affair with Brody's wife in the book. Right. Yeah. And in this, he's a lot more. Ah, you just like the guy a little bit more in this one, I guess. This is why I claim that Peter Benchley is an accidental genius. Uh, he had all kinds of really bad ideas in the book that never made it into the film. And so we we sort of ascribe all the genius of the film to Peter Benchley, even though most of the creative choices that he makes in the book are actually really quite bad. And uh, he imbues the shark with enough moral intelligence. I think uh, the criticisms of the um, classic horror movie trope of uh, the killer sort of representing conservative values like uh, Michael, the shark is Michael Myers in water, um, as as Noah said in the comments earlier. I think that that uh, applies more to the book than it does to the film. But anyway, we're sort of getting well. Any other comments about masculinity, or should we should we move on for this? You know, no, I think I think you have um, a really interesting point here. So, like, I mean, especially with um, with Brody, like, I, I think it's very very clear that he's sort of like stereotypically the hero figure. He's quite stoic, um, but he also seems to be the person that's trying to take on everyone's burden. You know, not just because he's a police officer, but literally his driving motivation that we see multiple times is that something is going on people are being hurt and he can't do anything to help him, them and i think that's really kind of like what pushes him forward through his progression um getting over his fear of water or whatever um getting onto the boat in the first place to go hunt this shark all of it is driven by the fact that he feels like he can't be a protector now i also want to look for the other side of this and see if he depicts anything sort of negative about that so like the inversion of the protector kind of like archetype or whatever and if he becomes sort of like overbearing uh controlling and i really don't see very much evidence of that like he, he genuinely seems to be 
a very positive figure from maybe that sort of like masculinity standpoint, perhaps. Now, when I think about the other two, yes, like obviously Quinn is supposed to be the sort of like traditionalist, maybe a little bit more, you know, gut, a little bit more uh, phallic, as you were saying. Um, and that seems to be very clearly kind of negative in the way that he conflicts with um, with Hooper, who is sort of, if you take the other side of that, you know, the intelligence, maybe about the egoism, perhaps sort of like the more negative traits of what we see is, you know, maybe like more of a progressive modern day masculinity, right? So like there's a very clear conflict between Hooper and Brody because of their two different sort of traditionalist versus progressive forms of kind of like that dominance. Um, and it's good to see that they sort of like come to a resolution, though, again, at the end of the movie, we do see one of them dying out and perhaps that's a little bit symbolic. But yeah, I mean, two of the three masculine figures in this movie seem to have more of a negative bent, I think, where we see the one that sort of like shines above them and and becomes quite a bit more positive and isn't really sullied by that is the guy that doesn't show his scars and doesn't try to compete on that level. He just genuinely is concerned about protecting others and trying to do that however he can. I, I will point out the guy who made fun of the college learned guy for being a hippie liberal, he didn't make it. And <laughs> the hippie liberal who was college learned, uh, he managed to survive. So maybe well, I mean, that was what Spielberg was trying to put forward. That could be it. And that's the other interesting reason why it's why Hooper was supposed to die. You know, I, I wonder if that was actually supposed to be kind of a little more of what you could draw as a theme from the book, where those two different sort of negative masculine attributes, stereotypes, if you if you will, um, cancel each other out and destroy each other. Whereas, like, kind of like the more timeless elements that we can draw from what masculinity may symbolize is the thing that persists. Um, or is anyway. Brody the guy, and then you have these other two guys is the like angel and devil on the shoulder that are arguing with each other. And they're supposed to die off when you finally figured out your own conscience. I don't know, <laughs> uh, but it didn't work out that way because the college learned uh, cheating with your wife guy at ended up surviving. <laughs> so we don't know that that happened. Hey, in the movie. Yeah. We should say he, uh, he cheated with his, uh, with Brody's wife in, in the book, but not in the film. Um, and then, of course, during the climax of the film, he goes to hide under some ocean bushes uh, instead of engaging in the the fight with Brody. But uh, then again, it would have been relatively uh, difficult for him to pop up and say, hey, you need any help here? Um, but yeah, I uh, Ben, I like what you're saying about uh, the idea of these two, the phallic and the the intellectual masculinity kind of canceling each other out. Um, and it sort of leaves the protector and the heart uh, as I'm figuring in my sort of, um, uh, in my tech, in, in my labels that I'm putting on these, this film. But I wonder about uh, Brody's relationship with his wife and his sort of family drama and how that sort of impacts how we affects rather uh, how we view uh Brody's sense of masculinity. Um, we get a few scenes between he and his wife. Um, the the scenes are almost always Brody worrying about his work and his wife sort of serving as a comfort figure, Ellen Brody, uh, serving as a comforting figure in, in his life. Um, and then, of course, we get the incredibly great scene where he's doing all the 
poses of worry and the sun is imitating all of the poses of worry at uh, over uneaten dinner and that is first of all that's that's just an adorable as fuck scene um but i like how his domestic life is still somewhat troubling to me because i feel as though there's, there's something troubling about that domestic situation. And I think it has a lot to do with the relationship between Brody and his wife, which granted, while not totally explored in the film, also does seem, there seems to be some tension there. And uh, I wonder if that sort of throws a fly in the ointment as we're trying to elevate Brody to this this grand hero status in this film. Well, I definitely wouldn't elevate him to that point because I don't think any of the characters are written that way. He has his grays as well, even though they might be a little bit harder to find. Um, the tension that you're picking up on may be related to one of the many subplots in this film where they moved to this island, they're outsiders coming from New York City, and he did that for his career. Um, it's a very storybook tale, right? Did, it's, he do it's that very... for his, did he do that for his career or did he do that for his wife? Isn't there that one moment where he's narrating, he, he's saying, oh, let's move to, uh, it'll be safe there and blah, blah, blah. I think he's talking in the in the voice of his wife in that case. Or am I mistaken? Oh, got you. Well, it, it might have been for those reasons. I, I feel like there is definitely, you kind of see some scenes where it seems like she wants to leave. Um, and he probably made the decision, you know, for whatever reason to pull them there, kind of like as the ultimate head of the household. Like, I mean, going back to the way you frame this family and like their home life, it does seem very sort of like traditional, you know what I mean? Where it's like, he's kind of like the one in charge. You have a stay at home mom, you have the young son. And while there does seem to be like warmth and playfulness and, you know, there's not a whole lot of like negative conflict, I think. Yeah, you do see that tension where I, I it seemed to me like maybe she was not necessarily comfortable there. Like, you know, she has this conversation with someone else asking when she's going to become an Islander. And they're like, no, never. Unless you're born here, you're never going to be an Islander. You never you're never going to be one of us kind of thing. And whenever the trouble starts, she actually asks him you know, kind of like maybe not necessarily a perfect interpretation of what he said, but hinting that she perhaps thinks it's better to just move away and go back to New York. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's hinted at there that perhaps there is sort of like that conflict and he maybe made the ultimate decision of what was going to happen with his family. Um, which of course is maybe something that we see is not necessarily sort of like an equal kind of like share of the decision-making in a household that we would value today. Um, anyway, like that might be part of what you're picking up on. Does that make sense? Does that I, sound about right? I actually, I want to weigh on in this because this is how the, the female male situation tends to occur in our world. Uh, it, even to this day, but probably way more so than back in the day, back in the day, women didn't like go, we're making this decision and we're going to do this for our family. What they would do is they would be like, hey, this would be really great for the kids. Hey, this might be a really nice place for us to live. Hey, this might be a lot safer than New York City. Hey, this might be a, a better better life to live to try to implant these thoughts into the guy to make him make the ultimate decision. And this is why everyone says that behind every great man, there's a woman or the, the women are the ones that are actually wearing the pants in the family. And it's because of how women have had to use their the way they discuss issues in the home in a less authoritative way, but more of a, hey, here's a seed plant of an idea. But here's what happens when it doesn't go perfectly. 
the guy will throw your words back in your face and be like, oh, this is so safe. Hey, I don't remember the sun being in this room. Oh, it was fall, honey. <laughs> you know, and they're having these like, that's literally how marriage works. Like you fight like that. It's really weird, petty arguments right from the moment you wake up. Like just for some reason you do that shit. Um, and Thanks for giving me another reason not to get married. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just relationships. It's just people. Like, this is how you interact. Um, but, like, I think that they were trying to put forth a, a legit relationship. Like, that's just the kind of conflict married couples have. Um, and, and making decisions on what is the safest and best way to raise your children together. Like, that's a really big decision. Um, especially when it comes to safety, right? Like, New York I, I don't know if you guys remember the New York in the 70s, but uh, I've seen some news reports. It was a pretty scary place at times. So you'd think Martha's Vineyard would be a little bit of a a bump up. Didn't factor in the shark attacks. Oh, well. <laughs> you know. made the French connection. And this, he knows all too well about uh, the dangers of New York in the 70s. The, the right? Yeah, right. Yeah. It's it's it is the perfect argument to have though, right? Like shouldn't we just go to the place where it's like safe and all the, you know, richer people go to vacation? That's it's a smart place to go. So, of course that idea got planted in his mind. He goes like let's go there and then he kind of holds it against her when it didn't work out exactly the way she had painted it in her, you know, seed planting. But the thing is is no matter what it was a better place. It was a happier place. Just don't put your kids in the goddamn water. It's super easy. Like, <laughs> oh, don't get you... them a boat. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's the lesson of Jaws. Don't get in a boat. That's uh, that's what we get from <laughs> from Jaws. Don't get in a boat. Don't go out to water. Uh, don't take showers because, especially in hotels. Uh, don't go to cabins and woods. Uh, don't live in suburban areas where uh, Michael Myers might live. And don't go out trick or treating on Hall Halloween nights. Uh, yeah, all of the lessons that we learn from horror movies are basically don't do that, asshole. Um, all right, I I have no segue to the next thing, so I'll just ask the question. Um, so last week we talked a lot about animal rights and we talked a lot about animals and eating animals and all of those things um and at the in in this film we have uh let's see if i'm counting correctly six human deaths um but we also have two deaths of sharks who are just doing their their darndest to to have a nice meal um do we have any sympathy for the shark in this movie or uh is spielberg was spielberg able to uh to cast the shark as the villain um in this film so that we don't i have sympathy for the devil playing in my mind now so thanks for that <laughs> uh so we so yeah but the question is is like the shark is not doing anything that's not of its nature like it's just looking for dinner it's looking for for a meal um and there happens to be some really tasty uh naked people doing some skinny dipping things and uh yeah like well, 
the shark's not doing anything wrong. And as Richard Dreyfuss's character explains in one scene, the shark is a, uh, well, he calls it a machine, um, but its job is just to eat, uh, swim, and make baby sharks. Um, in what sense do we, are any of our sympathies tied to the shark? Is is there, is, is it just me who, who thinks that, uh, that the shark deserves maybe a little bit of sympathy? It's got it. It's got its head blown off. Aren't you a pescatarian? What is a shark? Is a shark a mammal? I don't know. No, I guess I would eat sharks, but uh, <laughs> shark, fin, shark fin soup is actually really immoral in its uh, in its production. So I'll I'll give that part. I won't eat shark fin soup. Uh, go ahead, Ben. You seem like you were going to jump on the animal rights bandwagon. Yeah, I got something. I'm the say. only. I'm the pescatarian, and the rest of the, you two eat meat. So I'm. I'm definitely outnumbered. <laughs> Where's Garrett when I need him? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have like a a shark steak or whatever that I can just like fork up here while I'm talking about this hypocritically. Um, no, like I. I honestly think there is a little bit of a character study to be had on the shark as well, even though he is a lifeless, amoral eating, killing machine um, with no agency. He probably is just doing whatever sharks are programmed to do. Um, I think that's quite interesting though, because everyone else sort of that we see in this film kind of like has basically the exact same motivations as the shark. The shark is literally just trying to eat to survive. It found a hunting ground, just like sharks are apt to do. The signals that sort of draw sharks, and we even saw this in like a book that uh, Brody was reading, but the people swimming in the water, literally the kind of struggling sort of vibrations and signals that sharks are attracted to whenever they're looking for food. Um, so I don't think that it was necessarily, and of course, because we're talking about an animal here, you know, it doesn't have that same moral agency that people have. But again, like its motivation was just to survive. I think the people on the beach and Brody probably had the exact same thing. They didn't want their kids to die. He wanted to protect his own people, the humans. Um, and even the mayor, like even if you if you look at it at this level, the mayor trying to protect everyone's financial interests, just wanting the town as a whole to survive. So, you know, people kept coming in and bringing money so that they would have money to eat and build and grow and live. Um, it really seems to be the key theme here that the, the core motivation behind what everyone is doing is that they're just trying to survive. Um, and so from that basic level, I think, yeah, the shark is an interesting sort of understandable character, if you will, maybe a fourth main character in this movie with that kind of like a motivation. Now, does that mean that it deserves sympathy? I don't necessarily think so, um, because, again, it's it's not it's not like a, a moral agent. It's not doing this um, for any particular reason. Um, it's just acting in a certain way and then the people are reacting in a certain way, you know? I mean, it's just a common struggle. It's a, a, a will to power, if you will. They're both doing what they can to survive and this, in this particular instance, it means that they have conflicting objectives. I see this as a watery antichrist. <laughs> Man versus nature. Always what we're going to come to, right? <laughs> with, with these kinds of stories, right? Like it's it's man versus nature. Who's gonna win? Nature. We're gonna die first. Inevitable. I, unless we have a gun and a compressed air tank, and then we can blow nature's head off. Um, I get. Yeah, I I want to draw. There's so um, one of the commenters is making a similar point that that you're making, Ben. Um, uh, Husker or Husker? I don't know. H uh, e u s k e r. 
uh, says, I don't have any shark sympathy in the movie. Spielberg was able to do that. I think he's right, in, or he or she is right in that, uh, in that case. Um, but the quote is, ever look into a shark's eyes, all dead and lifeless, doll's eyes. But the, the continuation of that quote is, except when he bites you, then his eyes go all white. And I don't know what image you had when, when you heard Quint say that line, but the image that I had was that his eyes were sort of rolling up in ecstasy as though this was that when he bit you, when he finally... Uh, or she, I guess we're, we shouldn't gender the shark. Uh, when, the, when the shark bites you, it's so His happy. His name is Bruce. I'm going to guess it's a guy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. You're, you're, you're probably right. I mean, the shark's, it was named Bruce because Steven Spielberg's lawyer was named Bruce. So, uh, if, if Steven Spielberg's lawyer was named Elaine, then we'd have a female shark on our hands too. You could uh, also call it the great white turd. That's another thing he called that. So. <laughs> Oh, yeah, considering how troubled this production was, we can imagine why Spielberg was uh, making up derogatory names for the shark. But the, but the point is, is that then the shark is imbued with a sense of emotionality, right? So as soon as he eats, he's he, he has a, a feeling, an emotion. Is that something that we can relate with, something that we can... Um, it's something that we can feel as well. And when we, when you bit into that steak last week, Ben, I saw your eyes roll all white in ecstasy as well. Um, so I, I guess I, I, I'm saying that I don't think that it's as, as clear cut as the film is trying to, to make it. And uh, I think Spielberg needed to do sort of a shortcut. Uh, one of the things one of the, the critiques I would say of Jaws is that it's so heavily relying on some of these tropes that it's it, it's all it's heavily relying on these tropes, but it's also creating them. Um, but it's it's relying so much upon these tropes that it they're I don't think it has as much dimensionality as it could if we it, if if we're not able to also look at it from, for example, the shark's perspective, or maybe that's just my animal rights uh, point of view going going haywire. You're well, a pescatarian, though. Yeah, I know, I know. So, my hypocrisy knows no bounds. <laughs> you, in fact, do not have that vegan halo. You you don't have the superpowers that we might have seen in a Scott Pilgrim. Uh, right. You're not there quite yet. You've got to you've got to get rid of the fish man, and then you're going to be above all reproach. It's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> right so i i i want to argue against that a little bit um i do like sort of thinking about the shark as again just like a, a frenzied sort of killing machine with no agency or morality um i first of all like i mean i think this this movie has plenty of dimensionality like holy shit like the, every every character every important character is a study and like they all have backstories and lives and interacting and like growth and like cool stuff about them and the story itself is multi-layered and there are multiple small objectives that build up to a big objective like there's so much layering that having one more layer i don't think would necessarily i don't know it's it's kind of like it's kind of a like a, a zen sort of like stack of stones it's like where is that last stone you where are you going to add that that causes the whole thing to topple over where it's just a little bit too much and that might be if we had like some Celine Dion music as the shark was blowing up, you know, I mean, that might go, that might go a little bit too far. Um, 
But also, like going back to the beginning, we never got to this point that you were bringing up about the Lovecraftian stuff. I mean, I don't think it would be it would be antithetical to the 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 goodness and like the the horror and the the awesome whatever fear in this movie if we were to start giving a personality to this sort of lifeless mysterious symbol of death you know i mean like i think that would probably like take away from the movie actually that's a i i think that's a fair criticism of my point of view Um, can i posit this and and maybe give you a, a a boost Please, I I like Boose. So let me posit this. Maybe he is just this death machine person, but people can be that way too. Are they any less human than us? I mean, uh, one of the commenters, same commenters before, talked about uh, the shark as Shugur from No Country for Old Men. Just this this kind of killing machine. And even, uh, you know, sort of a... a, uh, 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 in in no country for old men he acts as sort of this metonym as of fate um with a coin flip and all that but yeah i like uh i think ben you are you are convincing me that i am wrong and i like that um and shara thank you for trying to convince me that i am right um but uh in the end i i i think it's a you know when we're dealing with uh films about animals it's very rare that we take the animal's perspective. I don't think we'll never do the film The Edge, but uh, if we were to ever do the film The Edge, I would wonder how we would look at it if, from, for example, the bear's perspective in, in that movie. Um, but this, yeah, it's 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 sort of an interesting question and, and something for debate, and Ben has successfully convinced me that I'm wrong. Well, I mean, I mean if we ever from his perspective, though, I, I mean, we see it from all the killers' perspectives. We always have the camera is the perspective of the killer. We have the POV shot; it, those pop up. Uh, are we the killer though when we're in those shots? And that's actually something that you know, Cabin in the Woods and other films have tried to ask us: Are we, are we trying to live this fantasy of being the killer? Are we trying to be killer sharks in our own fantasies? Is this something we want to be? Like, do you want to be a killer shark that, you know, randomly attacks women in the water who are vulnerable and swimming around and squirming around? Like, I don't know. That's actually where people get problems with or have problems with horror films is, are you living vicariously through the shark? You know? No, no. I've read, I've watched the news lately. It's bad to pursue women (laughs) underwater. It's not, they don't like that. Um, It's, uh, uh what yeah let's uh but Bren, you were bringing back this idea of the uh lovecraftian elements of the shark um do what do we want to explore that a little bit more well absolutely um you know first of all i do want to say though that if we ever i don't think we've done this and forgive me noah if we have and i just forgot about it but if we ever manage to do the gray and like we can sort of present that as an existential horror dude we will absolutely take the perspective of the wolves you know what i mean like and that's i think that's the film to have that discussion much more than than jaws is we should have that yeah i agree i i definitely agree. although the i will say when we we talk about the void and like looking into the void i guess the real void could be the ocean you know why not um and it's one of the most unexplored parts of our planet like we don't know a lot of the creatures there there's a lot of weird ass shit we haven't discovered yet that's deep within the depths of the ocean um 
There's a lot of topography that we haven't figured out yet. It's it's unexplored. Like we talk about exploring space, we could literally just explore the ocean and, and find alien life, you know? It's here. <laughs> we already have aliens here. <laughs> we could Are explore. We about the abyss now? <laughs> Maybe the abyss, the void, whatever. Like it, it could be Lovecraftian when we talk about the ocean. Like there's so much unexplored, whatever the fuck, you know? Well, that's that's a great point. That's I was I was actually about to bring that up. If you didn't, that I mean, that really serves as a foundation for the Lovecraftian perspective in this movie because. I mean, if we think back to the Cthulhu mythos, I mean, that's that's the whole thing, like the great old ones or whatever coming up from the depths, you know what I mean? And it is like it's it's that for the very reason that you've mentioned, because it's so utterly mysterious. Um, I, I do think that's a really strong support for that message. However, I would argue against this being Lovecraftian as a whole, because the um, the monster itself is too it's too um, corporeal. It's too. Uh, mundane like i mean ultimately we are just talking about a shark and while it's masterfully used in terms of the cinematography and you know barely showing it symbolizing it through music and through other objects um and perspectives and you know all this kind of stuff i don't think it's necessarily lovecraftian i would i would describe it more as like hitchcockian uh, i think that would probably be a little can i argue that yeah 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 the shark because of its doll-like eyes as a uh, husker said uh it may just be one of the uh chosen ones trying to get us into the actual lovecraftian creatures below that maybe they're like the cult like leaders trying to bring us down into uh you know i don't know <laughs> maybe looking way too much into this maybe the sharks trying to bring us down to their levels you know i don't know <laughs> I, I just like that Noah put in there that the ocean equals the unknown equals abyss equals wet Lovecraft. And I feel like we need to argue. So this is a thing. Right. Yeah. I think that's a new deadly analysis t-shirt uncovering wet Lovecraft uh, or making Lovecraft wet. Uh, that would be a, a sound off in the comments below would you buy that shirt um don't no, i don't actually think you should anyway um yeah i i guess when i when i thought about the idea of this being lovecrafty and i was thinking a lot about how lovecraft is often about the indifference of the things that want to kill you that the things that want to kill you are it's just their nature to murder and that it's not necessarily uh, driven out of any specific intent or it's not driven out of any specific uh, desire. It's just the nature of the thing to kill you. Um, and I think that that relates to how the shark is depicted in this film. It's as though the shark, I mean, it's it's even described as a doll. It's described as a machine. It's described in non-human, non-animal uh, terms. Is as though it's uh, as though it it sort of lacks any sort of moral agency. As you were the point you were making earlier, Ben, when you were uh, shooting down my animal rights point. Um, effectively and, and wisely probably shooting down the animal rights point. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's how I was, I was approaching it. Maybe it doesn't fit all of the uh, necessary um, 
aspects of Lovecraft in order to make it truly Lovecraftian. But are there elements there? Maybe to what degree is it Lovecraftian? Or, or not. No, sorry, I was I was struggling to find my unmute. No, I, I definitely see that, right? And so, like, there's there's also this element um, of sort of Lovecraft, and this is coming up maybe as a joke in the chat a little bit, but I do want to at least address this about the whole ocean as chaos. Um, and I mean, I could definitely see that, right? Because like, you have this perspective where the the boat is sinking, um, all their hope is disappearing. Like, that's the core fear is being helpless, alone in this in this sort of like water I, I don't know whatever I, I can't even think of flowery language to describe this just because it's so utterly mundane but yeah i mean if you think about it as chaos yes i mean that sort of represents death right you've sunken into this place where you have no control over your own fate and something is probably coming to kill you i, I definitely see that but still whenever i think about lovecraft as being sort of more of a cosmic scale um, the ocean is vast and mysterious and chaotic, but it's not quite to that level. Um, and also, like, I, I think if you're going to try to, to pull themes about like order versus chaos and, you know, that kind of like sort of a deeper analysis of what you're seeing in Jaws, you might be more apt to sort of like read something like Moby Dick. And like, I'm not going to go into this like in, in a lot of detail and I'm not going to pretend to be like an expert on this book or anything, but I do think that you could almost conceptualize Jaws as being sort of like a, a sort of more accessible version of some of those themes maybe but if you're looking for that kind of like heavy symbolism that's where you're probably going to find it um or maybe e either that or like the old man in the sea or something like that you are going to find a lot of that in moby dick uh i've read all moby dick and it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a project um i think there were two books that were three books that were the most difficult to read and that was james joyce's ulysses david foster wallace's infinite jess and Moby Dick, uh, which is long and tough to read. But we do have a very Captain Ahab character uh, in the person of Quint in this film. Uh, Quint is, is very similar to Captain Ahab, driven by ambition, driven by revenge, driven by um, aggression, and ultimately dying. Uh, spoilers for Moby Dick. Um, I hate spoiling a 200-year-old book, but, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, there's some interesting themes going on in, in um, Moby Dick. Also, his boat was Lake. named Orca. Orca, and then it's not named Orca in Moby Dick. It's named, oh, the... Queen. There's similarities to, like, naming your boat a proper name, though. Um and you know, maybe that's where the unoriginality came is the book, the the person who wrote the story that inspired Jaws. Maybe he was reading some Moby Dick and decided to create some stuff, but it's still creative. And that's where I still go back to that. Like, yeah, it's maybe not original, but it's creative. And uh it, it I don't know, it made a really awesome movie. <laughs> that we we watch. It it a movie that was rife with tons of issues and actually the crew called flaws throughout the uh you know making of it so yeah let's talk about that this is a famously troubled production so bruce uh as he was named after the shark uh didn't work and looked absolutely ridiculous and so what did spielberg do uh, how do you make a, a shark movie and you don't have a shark? Will you turn the camera into the shark? And as a result of that, 
uh, we get that's the reason why we don't see the shark for most of the movie because he wanted to show it as sparingly as possible and basically turn the camera into the shark. It's how uh, limitations allowed for creativity. And Spielberg was later quoted as saying if he had all the CGI technology of today, he might have actually made a worse movie than Jaws. Um, those are uh, not only that, the the production uh, ran 100 days over schedule. Um, it was supposed to be a 55-day shoot, and it was almost three times that. It was all shot on open water, and there was all the problems associated with open water shoots. Um, and they were reworking the script. Uh, it originally was written by Peter Benchley, who authored the novel, but uh, the co-writer, Carl Gottlieb, um, was working on the script almost always, uh, often the night before they were to shoot sp specific scenes. And it's Carl Gottlieb who infused the film with a great deal of the humor that we see in it. Um, this is, uh, yeah, it's it's an incredibly troubled production and it, it speaks to Spielberg's talent as a director and as a problem solver that, was, that he was able to craft such a great movie out of uh, all of the limitations that he was offered. Yeah, the budget even tripled. Uh, it tripled, and that's usually a death sentence for most people. So uh, the fact that he managed to squirm his way out of this and, and make such a huge blockbuster film is... They were also supposed to make the film come out around Christmas time, which is when all the big movies are supposed to come out. And, and summertime was when all the shit comes out. You're not supposed to have your films come out during the summer. And he put it out during the summer. Perfect timing, though, uh, because it, it fit with a summery kind of theme. And maybe that actually worked in their favor that the production lasted that long. Because if they would not have come out in the summer, it wouldn't have that great theme of the summer and the scare of the summer and people who are beachgoers are like going to watch this film and then go back to the beach. In fact, Martha's Vineyard tripled their vacationers to their fucking beach from this film, which, you know, it's funny because in the film you have the mayor looking at this billboard. He's like, we can't be the shark place. And it's like, actually that brought people to you it actually increased your numbers that actually increased the bottom line bro um but yeah it it's it's funny to me how some of the mess ups actually worked in their favor so yeah it's almost as though the production was uh snake bit and then that turned into a good thing um, and uh, it invented the summer blockbuster. You talk about how the film wasn't supposed to come out during the summer and then had to because of delays in production, delays in uh, timing. Well, you're right. It came out during the summer, and then it invented summer movie season. Um, this is why we have a lot of the big CGI spectacle films come out during uh, during the summer, as I was telling the Meg just last year. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're getting Godzilla King of the Monsters. We're getting other films right now, uh, that are Spider-Man Far From Home is coming out later this week. Uh, these are all big, heavily spectacled films. And those, that's because Jaws invented the summer movie season, invented the idea of going to the movies during the summer, um, and seeing, uh, kind of more commercialized rather than uh, artistic Oscar 
Oscar contending fair. And like, I really think there is something to the fact that sometimes these like troubled limited productions, um, they really are sort of like a hotbed, I think, for like interesting techniques and development and uh, sort of like innovation in filmmaking. Um, and this is just from like my my short sort of look into actually the the world of short film and how sort of like new filmmakers come onto the scene. Um, you know, obviously with sort of some of these shorter films, you don't have nearly the budget that you would, you know, some of these like more well-known directors, obviously they have massive budgets, massive productions. And so, I mean, it's really easy to do things a certain way, but when you have all those resources available to you, I don't think you really think you're, you're not trying to think outside the box, right? The only way that you're really going to have that is sort of like this necessity, right? Um, forcing you to sort of think around the problems that you have and come up with these interesting techniques and uh, cinematography. So I 100% agree that if everything had gone exactly the way it was supposed to on this set, yeah, I mean, it would have it probably would have turned out shitty. Like all the, the subsequent Jaws movies that we've seen, all the subsequent shark movies that we've seen have been utter garbage because they show a big giant shark. And like, that's the focal point of the movie. And it sucks. It absolutely sucks absolutely sucks except for sharknado that was amazing <laughs> for fuck's sake no it's not amazing <laughs> amazingly bad um not even in like the way that the room is amazingly bad it's just really really bad um but like i, I do kind of wonder though so like you see sort of elements of this and whenever you think about that opening sequence where you're not showing a shark the camera is the shark so yes obviously we just talked about this a little bit earlier where maybe halloween you know maybe like john carpenter or whatever he might have borrowed from some of those cinema th those techniques but also i kind of wonder if that was sort of like the basis for some of sam raimi's work in evil dead because like the entire point there is that you don't see the thing that's coming to get ash it's the camera. It's always the camera. And that's why that movie is so good. You know what I mean? It's, so it's not like always the camera. And that's actually what makes it extra interesting and why horror can be so fun. So uh, it, there was actually a really awesome moment. Uh, this is where John Landis actually came onto the scene. He built a, a pier <laughs> for this scene. He was not a director. He wasn't a known person, but he built a pier and that pier uh, was is where the old people put the food out and they were like trying to catch the shark and then the pier like moves out and then the pier is coming at him. Not always was the shark a camera. At times it was a pier. <laughs> and I'm just like, and that was because they couldn't use the shark. They had to come up with something creative to replace the shark. And so those moments are so cool. Cause you're like, how did you make a pier scary? You made a pier scary. <laughs> and and three yellow floating barrels as well. Yeah. I mean you're you're right there. Go ahead, Ben. Oh, that's that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. It's like also like later in the movie, we have one barrel, then two barrels, then three barrels representing the movement of the shark. And whenever they surface and the music changes, then you sort of like have this implied danger, this implied shark. Um, and yeah, just like that pier scene actually was was quite fantastic because you have it sort of moving out and then you see it turn. <laughs> and that's when sort of like the tension build is because like you see this this object turn in the water. It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I wonder if some of the physics of that quite works out because the shark should be ahead of the pier and therefore I think the shark should probably probably be eating that guy by the time that pier is able to hey, turn around like that. But was was great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm quibbling. It still works. It's yeah, and the, the three floating barrels as well. Um, this is how Spielberg builds tension and suspense by not showing you things. Um, and 
even when we're talking about uh, setting up the monster and setting up uh, setting up the shark as the monster, I should say, um, we get those inserts of that book where the shark is doing all of these incredible things to boats and fishermen, et cetera, et cetera. It's setting up the powers of the antagonist of the film. And that's how it builds tension because later on we get to see the shark doing some of the very same things that we see him doing in the book. Um, and we even get some of these false jump scares where uh, Brody is reading the book and his wife comes in and he sort of jumps up and oh no, it's just his wife. And so it sort of reminds us that this is a horror movie, that this is a suspense film, so that later on we get those same kinds of reactions when we've got actual danger in the uh, in the film. Um, it's, it's masterful in its building of suspense and tension. Now, I will say this. Steven Spielberg said he, he had some regrets with some of that, though, um, in that... So when he had the initial edit and cut of Jaws, um, he didn't have that head that came out the uh, hole in the boat um, when when Hooper's down in the exploring and finds the shark tooth. Um, he didn't initially have that, and he added the head. Now, the the thing that is interesting about this is from the first viewing, it was when the shark first emerges out when he's putting the <laughs> slop out there and the shark emerges out and is like, oh, shit. That is when the audience would all spring out of their chairs and be like, holy shit. But an interesting thing he noted is when he added the head, uh, that was when the audience freaked out. And then when the shark came out, there was a less of a reaction. And, and Spielberg said he learned from that that if you show people to be tense about something, uh, now they know not to trust you and they're and they're going to be on edge a little bit and be like, okay, what are you going to do next, motherfucker? And there's something to be learned from that. And um, sometimes, like, maybe just keep that one big scare. And uh, a lot of horror people think, oh, that one big scare was huge. Let's put 50 of them in my movie. <laughs> and it's like, that's not how it works. So there is something to be said about keeping that one big scare um, to really get the reaction that you want from the audience. And this is something Spielberg was intensely intimate about. He would go to screenings of Jaws and watch audience reactions to see when they would freak out and, and react. And it's because he cares. He cares that you, he cares you scare. <laughs> and, and it's kind of a beautiful thing with his artistry. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, first of all, Steven Spielberg, I know you're watching. Um, I'll go see any movie you make with you if you wanna <laughs> if you wanna judge my reaction, I would be happy to sit next to you and watch movies that you've made forever. Uh but yeah, I, I think you're right, Shira, that uh the you know, the the film needs those I, I agree that I think the head is a little much. I think it would have been that would have been a better scene if he had just found the tooth and then somehow dropped it. Uh, I don't think you need the head, but at the same time in the latter half of the movie, we get a lot of shark and I think the film does need to pay off all of that setup. And uh, yeah, this it's, it's sort of a masterclass in how to build suspense and build tension. 
Um, What's really interesting about this head, though, too, also, I mean, you see this same thing um, in Indiana Jones a lot. And so, like, I, I really couldn't help but to compare this movie to Indiana Jones <laughs> a whole bunch, just not not only because of the music. Like, I swear to God, like, some of the music that John Williams wrote for Jaws reminds me of so many scenes in Indiana Jones where you have almost, like, the exact same sound, but we have in the, instead, like, in this movie, you have Hooper, like, driving the boat. And, like, you know, you've passed, you've passed a period of tension in the movie. but now you're getting back to like this sense of adventure and like yeah we're gonna go out here and do it man like it's gonna be amazing and you have this like this hopeful uplifting sort of breakup of that tension before something terrible happens again but like the music yeah exactly exactly what you hear from indiana jones and like i swear to god he uses this exact same jump scare all the time where you have like a skeleton head like pop out or something like that or like snakes come out from somewhere or rats and like you have that sharp music or like that sharp sound and that serves as that jump scare like this is very clearly the precursor of that for steven spielberg but again probably one of those lessons that hollywood shouldn't have learned because clearly the jump scare has oversaturated horror to the point of um disgrace i would say it's ridiculous how much we use that isn't it funny Um, that he was talking about this back then like he was talking about this back then where he was like, I may have overdone the jump scare. He only did it twice. <laughs> He's like, Oh, two is too much, <laughs> you know? And it's like, wow. You know what? I love you. <laughs> You're very aware of yourself. Of course it just got out of control with other people. So whatever, but I, I will, I would like to go to, if we're going to talk about scores, John Williams, uh, this score is fucking amazing holy shit but uh what's funny about it is um i don't know if this is true but i read it that when john williams presented him the music that he laughed because he thought it was a joke and he was like so really where's where's the music and think about it like you're like okay okay guys here you go here's my score you ready do (laughs) do no seriously where's the hold on do do Okay, is that do 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 do? What the fuck is happening? <laughs> like, I just want to see what happened with the presentation of that that music. <laughs> like, I want a Family Guy like animated version of what actually occurred here because it needs to be a I, thing. You know, I had never thought of that before, Shayra. I was always thinking this is well it won the Academy Award for best score, and uh, it it rightly deserves it. I had never realized. <laughs> When it won the Academy Award, when it won the Academy Award, he was down in the orchestra because he was down there leading the orchestra. They're like, you won. And he's like, okay. I've got to go up there. Yeah, uh, that's fantastic. I No, he... I, I had never really thought about that. I think you're right that if I were to just listen to that section of the score by itself, I would be like, what the hell is going on there? But I think the score in combination with the images ends up working perfectly. And there's also a lot of, you brought up Indiana Jones, Ben. I think you're, you're there are some fair comparisons there. There are moments of this score that are heroic adventure movie scoring uh, that it's that it's like, Oh yeah, well, like it's very similar to Indiana Jones. It's it's this kind of fun adventure music as well as the da 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 da. you know, those those horror sections work, but the fun adventure jaunty score also does as well. Um 
and in of the same way it does in Indiana Jones. So, uh, yeah, John Williams is amazing, obviously. Uh, let's uh, talk about. Um, so we've talked about the score. We've talked about what about the uh, the cinema. Uh, the cinematography of this this film is absolutely exceptional. Um, and let's kind of break down exactly why it's exceptional. Now, um, every shot, if you start paying attention to it, if you're if you go rewatch Jaws, uh, pay attention to the depth of field in every shot. And that is you have characters talking in the foreground, but you also have substantive action going on in the background. You also have these characters being placed at different edges of the frame and then they switch often. And so that that creates a, I'm trying to create a depth of field in a chair with my hands and it doesn't work very well. But you get the, the idea that uh, if you look at every shot of this film, there's a lot going on in the frame. He often frames two characters at either end. I'm going to see if I can get my hands at either ends of my frame, uh, at either ends of the frame. And so you're getting as close as you can to these, these people while also maintaining the distance, which increases the tension in the scene. Um, those are just a few of the incredible things that he's doing just in the people talking shots. It's not just... Uh, not just the the using the camera as POV, but it's also in the the people people discussing things. Those are, those shots are also incredibly um, well choreographed and and well constructed. Uh, do you guys have anything to add about the cinematography of this film? Or? All I can say is that the scene where he sees Alex getting uh, destroyed in the water. Uh, where you see him sitting there and, and he's getting his shoulders rubbed uh, and it goes into him and then the whole background is like the perspective gets crazier. Uh, that is actually known as in a lot of places now the Spielberg or the Jaws uh, you know, shot. It's not that he originated it. It's that he made it huge with that one shot, it, it made it that shot. Uh, and um, that's so funny to me because he's just this film buff who's copying things, right? He's like, let's make a movie, I'm gonna copy some things. And then they're like, let's name it after him. <laughs> um, yeah, it was Hitchcock who did it first, really. It was uh, in Vertigo. Uh, but those, those right. shots, those shots were done from like the perspective of what they would see and, and to make it look like what you have when you have Vertigo looking out. Spielberg used that to uh, have a person in the shot and looking and going, oh, shit. And it, it, I don't know, somehow Vertigo shot on, holy shit, that kid's getting eaten alive. It, it really works. It really adds horror. It really adds tension. It really adds this, like, yes, the suspense has built to this. He's watching all these people playfully screaming and laughing in the water for I don't know, two and a half, three minutes, but probably in his time, much longer waiting. He's waiting for the worst to happen. And this is how paranoia works, right? You're like, I know it's about to happen. I'm just sitting here waiting for it to happen. They're like, oh, you're just tense. No, I know this is going to happen. Boom. <laughs> that happened. Yeah. Well, I think 
that's actually a really I, let me talk i'll just talk technically about how that shot has to be done because it's incredibly difficult and um it's you have to put the camera on a dolly and then pull the camera back while zooming in and in in order to create that shot it's incredibly difficult because you've got to get the speeds just right so you're pulling the camera the physical camera back while using the lens of the camera to push in as the camera's going back and it's it's really difficult to do um but yeah uh go ahead ben i'm sorry i interrupted you i just wanted to talk technically about how that that gets done you know, you're good. So I just wanted to say in that scene in particular, there are a couple other things too that they do that are really interesting. Um, I, obviously, this is going to be one of the most tense uh, scenes in the movie because like Cher, as you mentioned, he's just sitting, sitting there. He's sitting there waiting for something terrible to happen, shitting himself. Um, he's looking out. He's trying to see anything in this his field of vision, like any any people in distress. He's just waiting for it. He's waiting for it. He's waiting for it. Um, but we don't just see that anxiety in him just looking out, right? So like the entire frame, like whenever you're looking at the beach, looking out at the ocean, looking back at him, it's cramped with tons of people. It feels very claustrophobic. There's a lot going on. Um, every time you do a shift from the beach to him, you're seeing that transition happen as somebody walks in front of the camera so like there's this this like white transition but it's because people are getting in his way um there are people coming over to him and like getting in his face um and all of this sort of like happening in this busy shot where people are kind of moving around and the way they're depicting that is set up to depict a very very high level of tension and confusion and sort of like a chaotic environment where you're just trying to do your best to find like this one horrible thing that's about to happen um it was very well done yeah, I mean, one of Spielberg's trademarks is he's got a lot of shots of people looking at things. If you go back to, I mean, just take a look at Jurassic Park, and you can do a, a drinking game where uh, how many how many shots are there where people are looking at things, and it's it's actually quite you, you'll be drunk very quickly. Um, and it's the same thing in Jaws. Is it's there's a lot of shots of people looking, and um they it's it's able to uh convey a whole world with just uh with 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 just a tiny shot like with with just a a look it's actually a thing that michael bay does really well yes i did compliment michael bay uh he's he also has a lot of shots of people looking at things and it's or in order to create a grand scale um, Spielberg invented it and Bay is just his ugly stepchild. And, and Bay bastardized it. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, the cinematography is just amazing in this film. Um, and, you know, the film is divided into these two halves. We've got the first half that's on land and then the second half that's on sea. If you look at the, the shots, every uh, the camera's almost always in low angles on land making people seem much bigger than they actually are. Um, I don't see how that, I can't, I can't quite parse how that thematically relates to the film, but it is a thing that I noticed that we've got a lot of low angle shots on, on the land. Um, but uh, yeah, Ben, maybe you can help me understand why that might be. You seem to, you're, you're making realization faces or thinking faces. So uh, let me know. 
Yeah, yeah, no. I think whenever you see kind of like those low angled shots, you have people seeming bigger than they actually are. You have them sort of looking down at the perspective of the camera. And I think whenever that's used, it's meant to project dominance. And so, like, I mean, that might be a dominion thing, right? So you have people on land where people are king. Um, but of course, like as you get out to the ocean, that's not so much the case anymore. <laughs> People look a lot smaller. The scale is much larger. You're in a lot more danger. You're now out of your comfort zone. You're not in control. I, I like that. I like that. I think that's uh, that fits. That's good. Um, let's say, uh, yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention is the use of humor in this film. As I said before, it was... Uh, it was the co-screenwriter um, Carl Gottlieb who sort of added the the jokes and the funny lines, um, and how those funny lines sort of work to dissolve tension and to um, add some depth to these characters. I think Richard Dreyfus is incredibly funny in this film. Um, there are some really good there. There's some moments of levity in this movie as well. Um, would you think, do you agree, Ben? What do you think? Yeah, no, it's absolutely critical to the flow. Um, like we were talking about earlier, how we have these moments where you have this sort of like uplifting action adventure uh, sort of like feel. But then, of course, you also have like this humor sort of seeded in as well at the very beginning of the movie, talking about like accents and doing silly stuff or like, uh, you know, Richard Dreyfuss' character, Hooper, he doing those like crazy faces or just really his reactions whenever he's in arguments with people about things. He's kind of making these like snide comments or whatever is like these sort of like sarcastic wit that he has about him. Yeah, no, it's it's great and i think that sort of probably goes back to a lot of um our discussions about how sort of like comedy and horror do go so well together because it's really about the timing but it also it's also about pace it's about understanding how to manipulate um um uh, emotional states i guess right so it's like you you have this sort of this lull period or maybe even like a, just a shift in emotion before we go back to like that that really sort of accentuated period of horror um and I, you you see this i think one really good example of this for for comedy actually is if you've never seen uh, zach galifianakis stand up he's really really good at this surprisingly he's a super goofy character in all of his movies but whenever you see his stand-up he uses this masterfully where you have a joke it hits he's got the punchline everyone's laughing then he intentionally lets everything get quiet and get a little bit awkward and then just pauses or does something else and in some of his work he actually he plays the piano a little bit like in between his jokes really really well just to give you kind of like that that red that rest that settling period because that makes the other peak hit much harder and that's probably why so much of this film in the tense periods works so well is because you do get that little bit of time to just sort of relax and shift. You're not always on, you know what I mean? Um, that tension's not always there, so you can't get sort of like desensitized to it. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I think the there's sort of this idea of comedic relief and the relief is from the the tension. And it also, I, it also gives these characters a lot more depth, I think, as well. Um, it, it, you know, the people, people laugh during tense moments or they try and make jokes to, uh, to quell the tension, um, often. So, um, all right. Uh, are we about ready for final thoughts or do we have anything else we want to say about this film before we, uh, jump into, uh, our scores and rating? Can I tell a weird story? Yeah. I don't know if it's true. Oh, what would a deadly analysis podcast be without a weird story from all of us? Um, yes, definitely. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's true, but I, I read it somewhere and I'm like, I love it. I don't care if it's true or not. So 
the the woman who goes up onto uh, the beach with the black veil and she pulls it back and then she slaps the shit out of Brody. Uh, apparently that took like 17 takes and because she, she couldn't fake a slap, she was legitimately slapping the shit out of Brody uh, for having her son Alex get killed because she didn't tell anybody or warn anybody with the signs he was ready to put out, but the mayor told him not to. Uh, so she was mad at him and he was like, no, you know what? She's right. I, I fucked up here. Uh, but what's interesting is she later on years later went into a seafood restaurant and while eating there, she saw the, the Alex, uh, I, I can't remember their last name, the something, Alex, something, you know, sandwich. Kittner, Alex Kittner. Kittner. Okay. So the Alex Kittner sandwich. And she was like, Oh my God, I played his mom in the movie. That uh, That's from Jaws. I, I played his mom. And then the waiter went, oh my God, and ran back and told the chef who is the kid who played that character. Uh, he had become a chef of a seafood restaurant and the mother and son were finally reunited in a seafood restaurant. I don't know if it's true, but it's a great goddamn story. <laughs> that's a wonderful story. I, I no hope idea. it's true. <laughs> I, hope it I hope it is too. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. So the two actors were reunited years later because of the Alex Kittner sandwich. That's fantastic. Um, okay. Um, so I guess I'll start. Um, this was a viewer suggestion. So this wasn't, uh, this wasn't any of our, our films. So, uh, we, there's nobody who sort of chose this for the podcast, except for you, the viewer. Um, so, uh, thank you for choosing a good movie. Um, this is fantastic. This is one of the best films. I mean, there's a, there's a reason that this is considered one of the best films of all time. Now, I think as, uh, time has worn on, it's, uh, was made in 1975 and here we are in, uh, 2019 and so i think that there does it doesn't have the effect that it had uh in 1975 audiences um so for me it's not as uh effective as it must have been for for those who uh who watched the film when it first came out but that doesn't mean that just means that it, it tempers my score slightly it tempers my enjoyment of the film slightly um and it's not the film's fault it's in fact all of the film's imitators fault um i think some of the uh the horror tropes are things that it invented and they work even today um and some of them are a little bit tired as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast the uh the sort of reinforcement of conservative mores. Um, so overall, but I'm, I also want to uh, talk about Roy Schneider, Roy Scheider, who's a fantastic actor. Robert Shaw is also really good in this film. And of course, Richard Dreyfuss. I think the three main performances are absolutely incredible. I think Steven Spielberg is an inventive filmmaker, showed himself to be an inventive filmmaker. And, uh, and for those reasons, I give this film a four and a half out of five stars. Um, I think it's uh, one of the finest films that we've reviewed on the podcast. Um, and it's almost it's almost synonymous with good horrors. Let me try that again. Synonymous. I can't do it. I, I'm talking like Donald Trump. Synonymous. <laughs> you didn't do it all that well either, Sarah. Uh, all right. I have I've, to slur it so I can slow it down. <laughs> I don't 
Yeah, I did it. All right, great. Uh, we'll stop talking now. It's called uh, cinnamon. Synonymous. Uh, all right, what did you? I'll throw it on to uh, Sharon. Do you want to jump in? Yeah. Uh, so this is this is the ultimate fish out of water tale, uh, and and I know that that sounds ridiculous, but it really is. It's a shark in a place where it's not supposed to be. Brody is in a place he's not supposed to be. He's not an islander. It is the ultimate fish out of water tale. Uh, and there are horror uh, horror elements that really work with this and, and were created from this. But it really is more of an adventure, I do think. And I think that's where it's hard for me. Although I do know there are horror elements, uh, it's hard for me to label it horror now. I, I know that's stupid, though, because it's definitely horror. But <laughs> it's like, I just, it's, I don't know. Uh, it, it doesn't scare me. But the techniques are amazing. The music is amazing. The the every aspect of it is so fucking awesome. So uh um ah, it's so hard. <laughs> I, I'm probably gonna give it the same rating as Jim, honestly. But I, I will I will try to throw this out there. Um classic stuff is just so good. And one of the things that Noah wanted to do with this show was he wanted to show that there's really good stuff that's coming out nowadays that we need to be paying attention to. And maybe we've over-oomphed the old classics to a place where they're not meant to be. But there is something to say about looking at the classics from the perspective of when it was made uh, and looking at the context of the film to weigh it. And it fits so well in 1975. Maybe it doesn't work as great now, but the techniques... And the music and naked lady running down the beach and getting shot all over the place in the water. Holy crap, her acting was amazing. Let's just throw that out there. Um, I know she was just uh, the very beginning, short, little lived actress, but God, that is an amazing scene. And it, it is just a reflection of what would happen in Scream years later, right? This beautiful girl dies right in the beginning. Um, so I, uh, it's really hard for me. I'm like, it's old and there's things that are a little bit old about it, but it's so classic and it invented so many awesome things. And uh, I'm going to go 4.5 out of 5. I, this is a hard one for me, though. It is a really hard one for me because my initial reaction wasn't that scared of it. So. All right, my turn. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, this movie is is bigly AF. Um, yeah, I gotta say, yeah. I mean, from a technical perspective, it's it, perspective. It's probably one of the the best things that we've reviewed. I, I would say. I think that's I think that's a fair statement. There's a lot of really interesting things going on here, not only with the score, but cinematography, the writing, the acting. Um, it's all really pretty much a plus. You know, I mean, there's not a whole lot wrong with this. Um, if I'm going to deduct any points. Really, I mean, it's just the quibble about how much of a horror it really is and how much, how well it speaks to a, an underlying fear. So, like, if I'm really picking this apart and looking for the fear in this, I think it's quite obvious, right? Like, there's that helplessness perspective that's there's like the, the man versus nature thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely there, but I don't think that Spielberg's strength lies in 
teasing out like a really good sort of sense of fear in his films. I mean, it's, it's kind of like fun and campy fear. Like, like, I mean, if you think about Jurassic park, yeah, there's these big killing machines like T-Rex is coming to eat you. Oh, it's going to eat you. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And like jaws is, I think better than that. It's honestly better than that. And it fits more into the category of horror than Jurassic park does. Um, mostly because of of the techniques that we've already discussed about how it's not really just about look at this big old shark it's like you know it's hidden there's the tension building there's the good amazing storytelling um all of that is 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 fantastic but it doesn't really i don't know yeah it doesn't pull out that that sort of existential dread that i would want to see quite well because i think you can definitely think of of the shark in this movie as being definitely a symbol of death like i mean if you think about it we've, we've already compared it to halloween um it kind of has that like lifeless gaze obviously you don't need a mask because it's not a human but it's the same sort of idea it's like this sort of mindless um ever moving forward um symbol uh some embodiment of of destruction and death um it's just it doesn't quite get there you know it's 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 a little too much fun it's a little too campy it's a little too much fun and while that does serve to break up the tension and make the tension hit a little bit better um yeah you know as a horror i don't think it works quite as well so if i were judging this on any other metric yes this this is going to be one of the greatest ever made um but in our horror rubric i think i'm gonna have to to bump it down just a little bit to a four because while it is it almost entirely flawless from a filmmaking perspective it doesn't really evoke horror in a in a like a powerful way that I would want to see um, in the horror movies that I rank in my four point fives, um, and as we all know, my five like it, it definitely can't touch that. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic. It's definitely a recommend, and there's really a reason why this is both both critically and popularly acclaimed. So if the shark had played chess with Brody, then would you have given it a five? Um, Ben's only five is the seven seal. So that's why that joke uh, works. Okay, great. Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to say too. Okay, so this is really difficult. And I'm, I'm finding this even harder the more we do these episodes, right? The scoring thing. Because every time I give a four or a 4.5 or a 3.5, I'm thinking of every other rating that I've given any other film on this show. And so one thing that I, I want to throw out here, it's an idea that Jim actually came up with and I'm really looking forward to is sort of a bracket where we argue for our, our favorite horror films. Um, and in that type of a a venue i might have to rethink some of my previous scores you know what i mean so anyway i hope that's an interesting idea because i'm kind of like pitching it out there um i would love to sort of like compare some of these older picks that we've already done and maybe do a little bit of rescoring <laughs> oh that's happening that's happening we will do the uh the goat podcast where it's deadly analysis greatest of all time we'll put all of our all of our films into a bracket and argue the hell out of them. Did our comments section not just fuck us up? Jaws versus Alien. Oh. Yep. That's probably going to be the end zone, I'm guessing. (laughs) Yeah, it might be in the final four. I mean, we've got Event Horizon running around there. We've got Dr. Caligari. For those of you, so a sort of inside radio talk for those of you in the comments, those regular watchers, in the uh the the chat right now um i have uh taken all of our scores for all of our podcasts and put them into a spreadsheet and so i've got the average score rating for every single film that we've ever done and uh then there will be a uh, a bracket 
um, sort of March Madness style bracket that we will we will do. That will be a, a grand episode with uh, once Noah comes back from vacation. Um, and once we have enough films to fill out the four bracket, is Alien going to be in the first seed? I don't know. We will see uh, once the bracket comes out. Uh, so uh, that's that's what they call in the business, a tease. Um, all right, so uh, thank you for joining us uh, for this discussion of Jaws. Um, hopefully we said one thing, maybe just one minor thing that hasn't been said about this movie in the past. It's been ar argued as, as uh, fantastic uh, to the death by other people. Um, so hopefully we've we've added to that conversation. Um, join us next week where we will take another film that is often not talked about, Rear Window. Um, and uh, we will be talking about Hitchcock's masterpiece, Rear Window. For me, it is the best Hitchcock film. Uh, we will we will dive deep into that. It'll be Shara, Ben, and I again. Um, and I will probably argue that it's not the best and it'll be a fight to the death. Yes. Look forward to that, guys. No. Yes, it will be a fight to the death. Um, yes. Uh, so Rear Window, uh, we will, that is next week. Join us then. Um, be sure to visit our social media. Uh, we are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, SoundCloud, and uh, we have a website, deadlyanalysis.com. Be sure to visit there. Uh, and be sure to like, share, and subscribe this very video. Um, so we will see you then. And we will also have more two-minute analyses coming out Wednesday and features as part of our shortcut segment on Friday. Uh, so until then, uh, thank you for joining us. Have a good night.